Where else can you go to not only find the information on how to train your dog, but the best deals on training equipment as well? Standing Stone Supply has everything you need to create that next versatile champion from DT system electronics down to even emergency med kits to take with you on your hunting trips. If you need some help with your training program, then their step-by-step online course might be a great fit for you, making it a convenient one-stop shop for the knowledge as well as the gear to take your training to the next level. Hit up standingstonesupply.com and promo code GDIY will save you 10%. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Well, and you know, this isn't just a quail thing or a Tennessee thing. You know, we've we have converted, you know, over ninety percent of our grasslands, our native grasslands, to something else besides a native grassland. And you know, we're seeing it with a quail. We're seeing it with a lot of native insects. You know, monarch butterfly has been petitioned for listing on the Endangered Species Act uh, because it's in such a steep decline. It's all, you know, the biggest part of it is the way we manage what we've got left. One thing we all love to do with our dogs is hit the road and go on new adventures. In order for that to happen, we have to be able to safely and efficiently travel with our dogs. Dakota 283 is dedicated to building unparalleled pet protection and tailgate lifestyle products for you and your best friends. Their one-piece roto-molded kennels have many options such as the Hero Series for military-grade crates, T1 low-profile kennels that will fit truck beds with tonneau covers, and their most popular G3 Series that's available in any size you'll need. Dakota not only offers many different sizes and styles of kennels, they also offer products and accessories to help with food and water transport, truck bed storage, and even grooming stations. Have a new puppy and only want to buy one kennel instead of buying multiple ones as they grow? Look at the Forever Kennel Insert Divider that gives you the ability to buy a kennel now and adjust the size inside as needed. No matter what you need to get you on your next adventure with your dog, Dakota has it for you. Check them out now at dakota283.com. Your new 283 lifestyle is just one click and free shipping away. Welcome back to another week of GDIY, everybody. Joe's with me again this week. Jojo, what's going on, buddy? Oh, just uh, we got another special uh, guy on the podcast. Uh, my son Caleb. So if you if you hear anything in the background, uh, that just means he wanted to make his podcast debut. Old Caleb, man, he's sitting there looking at the microphone and the screen, like, "What the heck is going on?" Oh man, he's he's all about uh, uh is, Does Raylan watch Puppy Dog Pals on Disney Junior? Raylan doesn't watch it much of anything, and I hope oh. to keep it that way. I want to keep that oh. TV off as long as possible with her. Well, well uh, <laughs> we we totally utilize it for us, and uh, he loves this show called Puppy Dog Pals. So now he's he's uh obsessed with our dogs. 
to where he just like uh, is touching them all the time and everything like that. So he's a he's a future dog man for sure. <laughs> well, well, good. Glad we could translate that over somehow, some way this early on. Exactly. Yeah. No. Uh, well, I don't know. Have you had a chance to listen through this episode yet or not? I know that you you know you you've been editing it, but have you actually listened to it? Uh, so what I do a little behind the scenes stuff is I, I kind of <laughs> go over it with a, a broad brush the first time around, make sure that nothing's crazy. And then I kind of go back and actually like listen to the episode before, uh, to make sure nothing weird happens as if someone's followed our uh, podcast, uh, for the almost two years we've been doing it every once in a while, something weird happens when we <laughs> upload it and I try to keep those down to a minimum. So, yep. uh, I, it's a pretty cool topic this week though. Yeah, it's it's different. We we really step out of our comfort zone, but it's it's relevant to what we do, right? Because if we're training these dogs, whether it's your ground, your chapter's ground, you have access to somebody's ground, you have to manage the ground, right? You know, and it's one of those things. I was talking to Michael McCord, who's on on. He's our guest this week. Mm-hmm. He's a he's a biologist for TWRA. He's come down, kind of. He's trying to map out a, a good little management plan for my property, and and we've talked a number of times. And I'm like, look, you know, I want to get you on, but I don't want to do the typical conservation talk. It's important, but we've all heard it, right? Um, and so I wanted to have him on and really kind of put it in perspective of what what we as as everyday dog trainers and handlers can can relate to and uh why it's important to manage your property uh with go- specific goals in mind whether it's actual hunting cover or training cover because you know you can go off the deep end one way or the other and you really don't get the benefits of of both of them and uh it, it's kind of a tricky decision to make especially if you own your own property but I, I hope somebody, you know, everybody listening to this gets something out of it. I know it's not specific, you know, kind of what we do, specific dog training or specific training topics and how-tos or or whys, but it is important because, you know, like I said, everybody's got to have training grounds. And and if you listen to this, maybe you can get involved with your chapter and help with those work days. Every chapter has a work day, so maybe you can kind of go into it with a better vision and goals in mind and and different considerations that maybe you haven't thought of in the past maybe you'll have a new perspective and and respect for what goes into managing the grounds whether it's the chapter or just a buddy's house or something like that Um, but yeah i mean there's a cost to it and you know it's one of those you really have to be looking down the road you just can't make split second decisions so uh we we really touch on a, a bunch of stuff and uh probably a bunch of uh of uh hot topic issues for some people i I would assume yeah get ready for some emails (laughs) yeah yeah we're gonna get a few but uh yeah i mean i I hear caleb already trying to trying to make his voice heard so uh we can speed this up if you got a review ready yeah i actually uh we're we're gonna go one from uh wednesday um Mm. and i think people are uh having fun with putting funny uh usernames here just to trip me (laughs) up Uh, but I'm going to say this one's Halberg GP. All right. Now it could be Halberg P, but <laughs> I like how with, you always come up with an alternative while reading their names, but <laughs> I'm going to go with Halberg German pointer. That's what I'm going to go. Halberg GP. There you go. Um, he says backing and honoring. I really enjoyed listening to the guest speaker, Daryl Pernat, um, episode 91. He really, uh, provided a wealth of information on this topic, both clearly and concisely. Keep it coming. There we go. I appreciate that. And 
once again, you got your uh, review heard, hit us up. We'll shoot you a sticker. But, yeah, we got a lot of great feedback from last week's episode. And uh, definitely a lot of people saying Daryl's got to be uh, come back on for another episode soon totally. because a, a lot of people enjoyed him, and I enjoyed talking to him. Very easy guy to talk to. So definitely going to work out something uh, – down the road with him but uh again thanks for everybody's feedback and, and your support um joe i guess the only thing left is a, a tip of the week i've been i've been waiting for it <laughs> tip Caleb's of the week. been waiting for it well this one doesn't come from a listener this one i we had a training day this past weekend and i kept i kept repeating one thing numerous times to different folks that I was helping out and i figured okay this is this this has got to be said again uh i know Every trainer kind of puts it in a different light. I'm going to go with, you know, how our buddy Scott puts it. If you're going to correct your dog, corrections have to have consequences. And really, if you think about it, what that breaks down to is do not give a command or a correction that you can't back up, right? Whether it's an e-collar, whether it's a check cord, whether that's you proving to the dog that you will come out to wherever he's at in the field and, and enforce that commander correction. If you're constantly repeating yourself in the field, that dog is just going to keep continue to learn that it can avoid you and ignore your commands. And it's just, it's just one of those things that, you know, we all kind of <laughs> slip up and let one slide here and there. Uh, you know, I've caught myself doing it. But, you know, when you're in the field, don't just keep yelling, whoa, while the dog runs right through you. Don't yet, you know, don't send it on a retrieve and just let it go the opposite way. If you're going to give a command, make it count. And if you're going to give a correction, make it count. Corrections have to have consequences. Okay. And it goes, it goes to just, I mean, for what you were talking about, but for when you're, you know, we're, we're training for hunting and there's nothing more annoying than hunting with a guy who's just going here all the time here here <laughs> or you know that if that's a result of not getting trained you know in the off season um so no i'm I'm with you on that yeah good tip nah, it's just a good reminder you know i don't know how much of a tip that is but a reminder to everybody because i have to remind myself to it i definitely have to remind my wife inside the house uh of it so you know, I don't know. Maybe this will be the week that she actually listens and uh, comes home and slaps me for for this. But uh, she she definitely gets that reminder a lot more. But yeah, it's it's important. And uh, is there anything else that you can think of that we haven't touched on? I don't think so. All right, keep keep leaving those reviews. Check us out, Facebook, Instagram. It helps sh- spread the word. We're still growing, man. It's it's amazing. Almost two years in, we're still growing. Oh yeah, well, and we're gonna keep on growing, man. Hell yeah. We got that rocket strapped to our backs. That's right. (laughs) All right. Well, guys, check us out. Facebook, Instagram, Patreon. Y'all know the spiel. I'm not going to keep repeating it. Go buy a kennel from Dakota. GDIY10 for a promo code. Hope you guys have a great week. Go knock it out. Send it. We get asked all the time what the most important thing to consider is when training and living with a hunting dog, and they're often surprised when they hear us answer with proper nutrition. It's pretty obvious when you think about it, though. It doesn't matter how well the dog is trained if it doesn't have the right fuel. The saying garbage in, garbage out rings true in dog nutrition. Yukonuba's premium performance lineup goes beyond just protein and fat with a number of different formulas designed to fuel your dog's specific activity level while supporting their recovery and optimizing their nutrient delivery. The proof is in the pudding, or lack thereof, when you make the switch to Yukonuba. 
you'll see immediate results in your dog's energy level and drive. They have a formula for every type of dog from your hardest working dog in the field to your laziest retired dog on the couch. Head on over to youcanubasportingdog.com to find the right formula for your hunting partner. Make the switch today and let Yukonuba fuel your dog so you can focus on what you and your dog actually love to do, work. Picture this. You just finished a long day's hunt or a long day in the training field grooming your next champion. You've run through your entire string of dogs in anticipation for the next fall. You think the day's over. It's not, though. Your day's not over until you let that ugly dog hunt. No hunting or training session is complete without capping it off with one of the spirits from Ugly Dog Distillery. They're Michigan-raised and purebred handcrafted spirits. They have everything you need from vodka and gin to your more traditional after-hunt choice Kentucky bourbon. Head on over to UglyDogDistillery.com to check availability within your state. And if you have an upcoming event that's alcohol-friendly, then be sure to reach out to us and see if we can add another Ugly Dog to the lineup. We'll tell you right now, we aren't much on flavored whiskeys, but you have to try their peanut butter whiskey. Unlike other peanut butter whiskeys out there, Ugly Dogs is made with real Kentucky bourbon and not just grain alcohol with syrup. So after your next hunt or a long day of testing and you're trying to decide what to drink, reach for the bottle with Ruger, the German wire hair pointer on it. It was handcrafted by people just like us, dog people. Every adventure starts somewhere. Make sure yours includes an ugly dog at your side. Explore responsibly. All right, I am joined this week by Michael McCord. Michael, how's it going? It's going pretty good. Had a beautiful day to get out and walk some property today. Yeah, we've been talking about getting you out here and, and kind of walking the property and giving me a giving me some sort of idea and plan to, to move forward with doing everything that, you know, my hopes and dreams entail out here on, on the property. But I uh, thought it was, you know, we've been talking back and forth about how we can work you in on the podcast, but also make it relatable to dogs. And uh, one thing that we kept coming back to is, you know, what makes really good training cover and training grounds as opposed to hunting cover? Because you, we kind of see this a lot nowadays to where you go out to training grounds and it, doesn't resemble anything as far as hunting cover and then it's kind of a disconnect for the dogs yeah a lot of times when we get out there to, to a lot of the training grounds or uh or the sh- shooting preserves uh you know it it doesn't really look like anything that a, any self-respecting quail would would <laughs> really choose to hang out in yeah and, and it's kind of a a shame first off let me let me jump back i should have said go ahead and introduce yourself and what you do and and what kind of got you into this this way of life so uh i'm michael mccord i'm a wildlife habitat biologist for the tennessee wildlife resources agency i cover uh, roughly a quarter of the state and i've got three other counterparts that that cover the rest of the state uh and my primary responsibilities are working with private landowners that are wanting to do conservation on their own property kind of helping not necessarily telling them what to do but helping them develop their goal and a plan and kind of walking them through uh how to get to where they want to be yeah and and, you know within within our state and it's going to vary based on state with all the different programs so we're not going to really touch on any of that but you know Tennessee has a number of options as far as state-run programs that can assist landowners and so you know that's that's really your bread and butter isn't it yes and we also have uh you know really the the biggest especially financial programs are the programs in the farm bill and uh uh everyone in the U.S. 
has a, a USDA service center that services them. So uh, I would definitely, uh, you know, reach out to your local USDA service center if this is something you're interested in. Reach out to uh, your, your local habitat biologist if there's one. Uh, you know, a lot of state agencies now have a private lands program, uh, and a lot of uh, nonprofits are starting to, to set up partner biologists as well. We've got several here in Tennessee that work uh, with uh, Quail Forever and also uh, some with National Wild Turkey Federation that are uh, nonprofit employees but critical uh, partners in the work that we're doing. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's one of those, you know, we're not going to dive too deep in what Tennessee has to offer because the vast majority of the people that listen to this don't live in Tennessee, so it's not going to help them out much. But so really what we're going to be talking about, like we already said, is training cover versus hunting cover and what and why it's important. And, and what you're saying is a lot of the training cover doesn't necessarily resemble what you find birds in while you're actually wild bird hunting. And, it, and it's kind of a shame to where if you have training grounds – you know, there should be some way or, you know, this might be uh, just too, you know, I don't know the right word, idealistic of me to say that if you have training grounds, like let's try and make it in the middle with hunting grounds and help the wild bird populations as well as training. Uh, but that's that's what I wanted to talk to you about. Like, is there a happy medium between training grounds and hunting grounds? You know, Nick, uh, I'm – brand new to this uh this bird training thing uh as you know in within the last year well basically a year ago we got a an english setter and a boykin spaniel which i do not recommend two dogs in the same year but you know what that's just the way it happened if you're Uh, gonna jump in jump in yeah just jump in the deep end whether you can swim or not you'll figure it out yeah but uh you know one thing that you know whether i'm reading training books listening to podcasts there's one thing that runs through all of them and that's the the best way to train your dog is lots of birds and the best bird to train your dog on are wild birds yeah uh and you know it's it's a shame that you know we can't do a better job of promoting habitat for our wild birds yeah uh, and it really makes a lot of sense to to caveat what you're saying is this you know our job as trainers and what we, what we really try to do is we go above and beyond trying to simulate wild bird contacts with pen raised birds a lot of the time in the areas, you know, that that's what the vast majority of us train these dogs with are pen raised birds. But if you're not able to simulate the contact and what they'll find on wild bird contacts in the, in the habitat and cover that you're going to find them, you know, that's that's kind of a big disconnect that we're not being able to uh, bring over into the training scenario that helps us when it comes to hunting season. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, what I've seen is in my short time with dogs is, you know, getting those contacts with wild birds in places where wild birds live uh, definitely helps build the dog's confidence. And, you know, my setter in particular, she was really timid about going into cover well she's starting to figure out that if she doesn't go into cover, if she doesn't get stuck in the nose with some briars, pricked in the ears a little bit, she's not going to find many birds. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, being able to manage, you know, our cover to uh, provide some some opportunity to, to, have, to sustain some wild birds, you know, alongside, you know, what we're doing supplementing 
uh, for training contacts, whatnot. Uh, I think that's really where we we need to try to yeah get towards. Well, so you know, we're not going to do a deep dive on all the different types of cover for every type of species. We're going to focus in like what you do know is you you do deal with mainly quail habitat here in Tennessee. So let let's speak to quail habitat because this is going to help people not only you know connect what they're looking for while they're hunting. But ideally, if they have property themselves or they have, you know, training grounds that they're allowed to work on or help out with or so on and so forth, maybe they'll get involved and really kind of help plan and put more quail habitat on the ground. Because we know that that's really the, the main, I don't know, you can tell me if I'm wrong, the main reason for decline in the bobwhite species. Absolutely. You know, we, we've got... A lot of other confounding factors. We we hear a lot about uh, nest predators. Uh, we hear a lot about avian predators, uh, fire ants, various diseases. But really, the 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 strongest correlation is the way our farming practices have changed since the fifties and sixties, and uh, the way we farm now, the way we manage land now. Uh, you know, as much as I hate the idea of six dollar gasoline you know seven dollar diesel might keep some bush hog bush hogs parked <laughs> and save some quail nests <laughs> that, that's a good way of looking at it i guess oh uh, well i mean so let, let's talk about the basics of good habitat and and like i said let's keep this in, in terms of training dogs because that's what we're we're talking about doing is taking the training grounds into hunting cover. So what what are the basics that you really need to consider as a property manager on what you're doing with your with your grounds that that benefit both? So when, when we're thinking about bob white quail, there's kind of three main components we think of when we're talking about uh, different cover types. Uh, the first one is what we might think of as brood cover. It's going to be relatively young. It's going to have a high broadleaf content, so what we might call weeds, lots of ragweed, beggar's ice, things like that, things that support a lot of insects for the the newly hatched uh, chicks to feed on. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not necessarily something that we're overly interested in from a hunting perspective generally, except that a lot of times the way we manage for brood cover is – regular disturbance so uh fall and winter disking and what creates good brood cover a lot of times also creates really good winter feed areas so we might not be necessarily hunting directly through that but we might be hunting uh some of the brushy cover immediately adjacent to it gotcha uh another component we think of is sort of our nesting cover Mm -hmm. and uh our nesting cover is typically uh, native warm season grasses so uh you know, I can look out into just about any field, and I've got what a lot of farmers refer to as sage grass, mm-hmm. and that's just broom sage blue stem, and that's kind of our our classic quail nesting cover. Uh, they'll build a little nest, basically build a bowl in the bottom of the clump. Now, just because I've got broom sage doesn't mean that I've got good nesting cover. Yeah. Uh, the way that's structured and the way that's managed makes a big difference if i've got some you know chest high tufts of grass versus something that was bush hogged uh in the last fall 
the the same species may still be there, but I've got a completely different structure to the field. Uh, and ideally, you know, having that standing cover and the way that broom sedge, you know, grows in clumps with uh, spaces in between to uh, allow the, the young to move through it to, to give the adults some overhead cover. And kind of the third component we think of is a, a scape cover or brushy cover. And really, this is the one that we really see most lacking on a lot of our training grounds because mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I don't like to get stuck with briars. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the flip side of it is neither do coyotes and bobcats and cooper's hawks yeah and that's why that's so critical is you know that's where you know generally there or very close association with that is where we're going to be finding birds in the winter time and you know a lot of times uh you know with the the role i'm in working with landowners a lot of times it's easy for us to fall into this trap of i'm going to have my brood cover over here, and next to that, I'll have some grass for them to nest in. Yeah. And on the other side, I'm going to have a strip of something brushy for them to hide in. But really, uh, <laughs> we just— It's too organized. They it, don't like it. it. it, it it's, too, it's entirely too organized. It, it suits our, our European mentality <laughs> where everything is in its place and it's organized. Really, it just needs to be a mishmash of just stuff strode everywhere, intermingled, <laughs> and just letting the rough side drag. And, and ultimately, I think that that is – we're laughing and we're joking, but I think that is a big issue. Now, I don't know if issue or hurdle really to come over is a lot of people when they buy property, hunting cover isn't necessarily the prettiest cover. You know, a lot of people like looking out in their fields and seeing organiza- organization. If they do plant something that's in even rows, it, it, it's – you know it's just not an eyesore but once you kind of understand what you're looking for in hunting cover then it starts looking pretty to you (laughs) but that to the average person they may look out in this field and be like what is that man cut you know go cut your grass that and that's that can be a big hurdle and a lot of times you know when i'm dealing with somebody who's just getting into land management that 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 is oftentimes the biggest hurdle is you know getting them to understand that we're not neglecting the property that we're being purposeful about our management decisions to take an action or to not take an action to to fulfill you know a need in that species life history that we're trying to manage for yeah so all right we you just came out here and you walked my property you know kind of let's let's just we can use my property as a reference to kind of what what you saw out here and you know this is kind of how you're advising me to go through it. And this might help other people kind of put it in terms of how they develop their own plan for their property or their training grounds through their chapter or whatever. Um, you know, what did you see out of my property and what, what are the main things like put it in the three components that you saw? What do I have? What do I not have? And what's the main focus going forward? So one of the first things we noticed that, uh, was that everything had been bush hogged off, late summer, early fall. And that was mm-hmm. a, and that was an artifact of this property was on the real estate market. Yeah. And nobody wants to buy a briar patch. Yeah. Uh, they want to be able to, you know, if, if, if somebody's coming out and showing a property, they want to be able to see the property. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that was one of the first things that, you know, we talked about was we're going to, you know, park the bush hog. Yep. Uh, you know, the, the, the second thing that, we uh, we noticed is there are some areas that we already have some decent 
escape cover. There's some fence rows along the road. There's a hedgerow or two that have got some nasty blackberry patches uh, and some other areas that are starting to, they're getting a little woolly and you'd probably be getting a call from your neighbors about that soon (laughs) enough. But uh, we've got some of that, but really in between, there's not a, there's not a whole lot of cover for a bobwhite or a rabbit or anything else to get from point A to point B. And uh, that's, you know, where we've got the, the low cut uh, turf grasses, you know, Mm -hmm. the, it's pretty typical around here. We live in the fescue belt. That's the the number one turf grass and pasture grass that we've we've got in the mid south. And it's you know one thing that we saw though intermixed in with, with that was a lot of broom sedge, which is that that clump grass I talked about earlier. That's probably our best and cheapest grass to manage for. Mm-hmm. You know, we could spend a couple of hundred of your dollars per acre <laughs> to plant some grass. I like how you say that. We can spend your hundreds of dollars. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, ultimately, you know, whether you're paying for it yourself or whether we're using farm bill funds yeah. to pay for it, uh, it's it's all of our money. Yeah. So, you know, when I'm managing a property, you know, my philosophy is would I spend my own money on this yeah. or not? Uh, because ultimately – at least symbolically, some of it was my money yeah, that yeah. I chipped in the kitty. So so I want to ask you, so like we're just going to stay out of the swamp here because I, I don't think that the average person really has swamp land to, to manage. You know, we, we mm-hmm. talked a lot about that, but let's just keep it to the fields and the quail habitat. The uh, one thing that I, I thought was pretty interesting is, you know, I'm leaving the bush hog parked, but as far as me using it as training grounds, I'm cutting lanes in there so that I can get through the fields. I can plant birds. I can have the dogs run through it, whatever, even, even retrieving drills. Like there's, there's benefits to that, but you even asked me, you know, why are you cutting the lanes? What are these for? And and I knew where you're going with that is, you know, why, why are we cutting this right now? That's what I'm talking about. The middle ground, as far as training versus hunting cover, because like you said, it's, we got to let it grow up and have the cover connect to where they can move brush to brush cover to cover food source to food source but how do we kind of keep it in mind when we're when i'm doing something that's for training for me to actually utilize the ground in the off season and not just hunting season so you know one of the recommendations i would have is if you're mowing lanes keep your lanes mowed because one of the worst things that we can do is if we're going to mow lanes is to uh, let our lanes, you know, get up waist high. And then we, we've got n- nesting cover potentially. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we see a lot on our hay fields around here is, you know, the hay field may be the only cover on the farm that could hide a nest. Mm. And then we, we're going to come in in the end of May or early June right at prime peak nesting season and we're going to lay it all down with a disc mower. And the disc mower doesn't miss. Yeah. Uh, even if it goes over the top of the nest, that nest is completely exposed. And our, our game birds, uh, in particular, are really sensitive about nesting disturbance. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, even if, let's say, we see the bird flush off the nest and we're cutting and we cut around it, well, if we cut around it, we've left an island. Yeah. Which is, you know, we basically 
put a spotlight on it to every <laughs> raccoon yeah. and a nest predator that says, hey, look here. <laughs> yep. And uh, if that's the only thing that's left standing in the field. And, you know, a lot of times the unfortunate outcome is not only do they get the nest then, but they'll also catch, which will get, catch the bird that's incubating the nest as well. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if we can keep our trails that we're going to use, keep them low, keep them, you know, clipped, uh, minimize them, don't put any more out than you norm- absolutely have to, simply because, you know, our predators, especially our mammal predators, they like to run those trails. Mm-hmm. Uh, and depth of cover makes a big difference. Uh, we, there was some research when we first started rolling out CRP field buffers. And basically what we saw is a field buffer that was less than 60 feet wide, even if it had great cover, was a net loss mm. because it was really good cover. We sucked a lot of birds in, but the birds weren't able to uh, overcome the predation that was in there because it just it, it attracted that it concentrated the birds and it concentrated yeah. the predators and it was efficient for them to hunt because these field borders are linear and you know yeah. at those of us you know with, with dogs we know that you know that's a lot of times the easiest stuff for our dogs to hunt yeah and you know our dogs we, we've got some uh we got a bag of kibble waiting f- for them when they get home. Their life hitting on the line. <laughs> you know, it, it's not a it's not a it's not a deal breaker whether they find find their meal in there or not. Yeah, most most of these dogs learn to hunt cover because there's birds in there, and that means a good thing. Imagine what they would do in this cover if they had to go in there for their meal. Exactly. So that that that's really interesting. So just if you're gonna mow lanes, keep it mowed throughout. Don't give them an opportunity to actually get established in the grass, and that that makes a lot of sense. But the depth of cover, you know, how if we're cutting lanes like you saw me, like what I had in my field is I had what most people probably have, a lot of crisscross and so on and so forth. Does that really, even if I keep it mowed down, you know, we, we I have wild birds out here. I told you, you know, they're whistling. We flush flush the covey uh, during duck season. They're, they're out here somewhere. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you exactly where. Does that really hurt for me to put in, you know, is there a, is there kind of a golden rule that you would advise, like space your your rows out this far if if you're really kind of considering hunting cover? Because, again, it's trying to meet in the middle because I, I had multiple people come out last year and during hunting season they're like, this is, this is great hunting fields, but I had very few lanes and they're like, but it sucks for training fields because you can't see your dog. Yeah. And when you're training your dog, you know, yeah, you want the good bird contact, but also if you're at a distance, you got to be able to see your dog and know if you need to make a correction, woe them, if they're busting birds, whatever. You have to be able to see them and know what's going on. And when that cover gets up at the end of the season, it's it's hard to do. I guess my thought on that would be, uh, you know, for, for training cover, if I can have my suboptimal stuff, the stuff closest to the house, the stuff that uh, I, I'm going to do my training on my poorest cover. Mm-hmm. And then once, uh, at least through the summer, uh, because the other thing I don't want to do is, you know, like I mentioned, the the the, the game birds, uh, galliforms, that's the turkeys, the quail, the grouse, they're very sensitive, sensitive to nesting disturbance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
And nesting disturbance could be a tractor. Nesting disturbance could be a pointing dog. So if I could have my best cover off limits through the nesting season, uh, that would be something that I would recommend. So so nesting disturbance, that, that can be considered just something as pressure from a dog. It doesn't Absolutely. necessarily have to mean that they messed up the nest or raided it, but just just pressuring them while they're on the nest can be a big enough disturbance for them to abandon that nest. Especially early in incubation. Now, once you get, uh, once you get later on into incubation, the, the further, the closer you get to hatching, the tighter they'll sit in the, because they've got more invested in it. Yeah. So they're a whole lot more likely to come back. Uh, I can remember I spent a summer in North Mississippi doing a nesting, uh, project, uh, for a graduate student out of Mississippi State, and I, re- I remember the first quail nest ever found, uh, and I found it when I was standing astraddle of it, and the hen flushed off the nest and slapped me the- on the inside of my legs with her wings. <laughs> I didn't know what ha- what had a hold of me, but we we specifically we we specifically checked nest fate every three days on everything else, but on quail and if we found on quail or turkey nests that we came across we'd only come back every five days Mm -hmm. because we wanted to minimize that disturbance yeah and uh it was pretty cool just so happened that we were exactly five days out when i found that nest because they were we when we came back they were in the act of hatching it was pretty cool to see all these little quail chicks running around all over the place (laughs) and i'd like to think that they uh that they made it but just you know just something as simple as a flush you know, if that's early on in the incubation, it can be uh, that bird can decide to to boot that nest and go start all over again. And that comes at a cost because, uh, you know, quail, they're typically, typically going to lay, you know, eight to maybe 14 eggs. And that's a lot of calcium and a lot of protein and yeah. a lot of demands on that hen to make that egg. Yeah. No, that's a good point. I mean – it was kind of interesting when you you listed those three species. You got you, quail, grouse, and turkey. You know, everybody talks about la- habitat loss, and all three of those just that they're real sensitive to habitat or nesting disturbance. All three of those birds are on the decline right now, and it's it's hard to even get them to level out, let alone go back up. And we were talking about this earlier. You know, we're hoping that that's not the case with the turkeys, but it kind of seems to be the case right now. Um, I mean, heck, Tennessee even lowered the the uh, limit this season from four to three. So you know that tells you something for sure. So again, I can't remember what what circuit it was that we we were kind of joking last week on as far as a test was run on habitat cover, and and you look out there and it's like that is not hunting habitat, and. I can't tell you how many times that you go out there and you and you're you're helping people train their dogs throughout the year. They're even testing at a high level. You know, I've gone out with a couple of people that do navity utility tests, but that dog's never seen a bird outside of just a clean cut grass field that's shin deep. You get them hunting, it's like that. There's there's a disconnect in the dog. They don't know what they're doing until they actually see a bird, smell a bird, interact with the bird somehow, and so like. That's why it's if you, I've been saying it, you know, to other people that I train with, I'm like, if, if there was a way to just get some actually good quality hunting cover and plant a bird in it <laughs> and use that, you, you can kind of decrease that learning curve and, and shorten it so that you can actually go hunting with it in the fall. And it's like you're actually hunting instead of figuring out what the heck you're doing in the fields. And so 
to your point, nobody likes getting stuck by briars or anything, but maybe that's the solution to where, okay, don't let it overtake your entire field, but let's give the bir- local birds some kind of little buffer zone and you can still get a lot out of the training that you can do with it. It's just, it's just not as easy to walk through, so, I guess. You know, I, I, I've got a rule of thumb or maybe it's a rule of ear. If my ears aren't bleeding, I'm probably not in good cover. <laughs> if I haven't got, if I'm not digging briars out, then, mm-hmm. uh, I probably need to be somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So another, another aspect that I find fascinating when you talk to people, uh, that manage their own ground grounds, or even just have a little small plot is you have kind of two sides of the coin here. You got people that will say that, the training birds that they use that maybe don't get shot have a direct positive impact on the local wildlife and the local birds in the area. And then you have the other side of the coin where somebody says it's actually detrimental to the local population and local coveys is, is either side really right or wrong? Is there kind of a middle ground? What's, what's your opinion on that? Well, there's not really been any scientific data to support that, uh, pin-raised birds are positively contributing. Uh, the The research shows that generally our wild birds, uh, and this is from basically hatching on, you're going to have about 20% of what hatches actually uh, make it through to the next year to try to attempt to reproduce. So basically 80% annual turnover uh, in wild birds. Uh, but in uh, pen-raised birds, the studies where they've looked at them, the the annual mortality rate they're finding is 99% or higher. So, uh, you know, we, we saw a very similar trend when the state of Tennessee first started trying to do turkey restoration. Mm-hmm. Uh, we The first thing we did is we, stri- we tried to farm turkeys. Yeah. And it failed miserably because farm turkeys don't know how to be a wild turkey. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, any more than a than a farm quail knows how to be a wild quail. I mean, how many times have we uh, walked up to a a uh, a training bird and it looks at us? Yeah. And we're poking it with our toes and yep. it still standing there looking at us and somebody <laughs> finally either flips Flings it up it with up. their toe or they reach down and pick it up and toss it. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's that that's not behavior that will make you last very long in the wild so what about it from the aspect you know maybe not just supplementation as far as breeding stock what about um the aspect of just providing a buffer to maybe the predators pick that bird off before it gets to the true wild one that is of breeding age and breeding stock so there's a concept called a target image and basically the idea is when there is something that you are specifically seeking out, uh, your mind and your eye get trained to find it. And I can tell you firsthand that I have experienced that because when I was doing that nest searching project in Mississippi, for example, mm-hmm. the first two weeks, we didn't find that many nests. But it's not because they weren't there. It's because we didn't have the eye for it yet. You didn't know what to look for. I, we didn't know what to look for. Uh by the you know by a month and a half in we were spotting those things at 30 40 yards out no problem uh because we had keyed in on what we were looking for and that's what we were doing all day long every day yeah uh, was searching areas to find these nests 
Uh, so the same thing happens, you know, we take one of these pen raised birds that doesn't know how to get out of its own way and foxes, coyotes, possums, raccoons, coopers, hawks, you name it. They learn really quickly that these birds are dumb. <laughs> they're easy to catch and there's a lot of meat on them. Uh, and you know, they don't know the difference between a wild bird or a pen raised bird. or a pen raised bird. They pretty much smell the same. They look the same. Uh, so basically, we train our predators to really key in on these things. And, you know, I, I've, I'm aware of no circumstances where people have uh, seen positive results from trying to supplement their wild birds with pin-raised birds. And a lot of anecdotal cases where people, you know, they didn't have as many wild birds as they wanted, and they started trying to supplement, and pretty soon they saw a nosedive. Now, whether that was a search image issue with the predators, whether that was uh, bad a stock getting mixed in with the good stock, yeah, watering down the genetics. Because I mean, you know, when we're talking about a species that has, you know, eighty percent annual turnover, only the best of the best are surviving to reproduce. Yeah. Uh, and you know, what does a pen raised bird need to do to be successful in life? It needs to smell like a bird. It needs to, it doesn't even have to look like a bird. It just needs to flush <laughs> and die a glorious death in a puff, puff of feathers yeah. for our dogs. And, uh, yep. it's, it's, it's been successful at being a pen raised bird. Yeah. We've trained with some pretty ugly birds that don't have the feathers. So again, I don't just, just to throw out another question on this topic before before we really move on is we're training the predators to look say we're using quail pen raised quail for as training stock and we're training the predators to look for quail would you venture to say and this is just your opinion you can be like you know this is a stupid question say I, we use only chucker or pheasant and we train those predators to look for those particular birds <laughs> would would that kind of help buffer it or a bird is a bird is a bird right uh i would lean towards a bird is a bird is a bird but you know my other concern with those is and always with 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 stuff that's coming out of a of you know the high intensity grow the the poultry industry does a great job about trying to minimize disease but at the same time it's always uh, a real threat yeah. out there and uh uh, it just, I, I'm just, you know, I try to be as cautious as I can about that. Yeah. And, you know, my recommendation is if you're training, uh, kill every last one of them. <laughs> yeah. Because the, no, nothing good comes from survivors. Yeah. That, that, that's been documented. There's been, you know, there's not been any documentation, you know, there's been a few times that I've been riding down the road and see, uh, a big pheasant run across the road in front of me here in Tennessee. And it's like, well, I need to look at the map and figure out where that rascal came from. But, yep. uh, I mean, it, it, it happens. I mean, you know, I, I moved in here not to, uh, I didn't have too much time to train out, out here last year. You know, it was pretty much, we moved in, got settled and it was hunting season, but we had, I did have a buddy bring some chucker up here one time and, and we did it. And then a month later I had a guy come in and do the last, 
last hay round and he's cutting and there's two chucker out there in the field and he's like what the heck is that he's never seen a chucker he yeah. didn't know what it was and i'm just like oh that's some training birds so they will stick around for for a little while and to your point i do know some people that have had a pheasant stick around pretty much until july when it got too hot and then it was just like all right that sucker got ate or died somewhere mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, to me that that's what's really fascinating is like you know once again you you have all this information out there, but people can still interpret it the a different way, and you know whether that's confirmation bias or or they just really read it a different way. It's just like you got people that swear by it. You know, I guarantee you after this, I'm going to have somebody hit me up and say, you know, I I trained with quail all last year, and now I have a wild covey out, out on my property, and I'm you know well how many coyotes or hawks did you have in the area before that would be my question i don't know and how many thousands of birds did you turn out to get a 10 bird covey yeah that's all that's the other side of it you know at one point in time i have been told i don't know if this is true or not but i've been told that at one point in time tennessee had the largest game bird farm in the world Mm. at buffalo springs and we raised i know we raised pheasants uh we raised a lot of quail and i believe we may have raised some chucker as well uh but i can't show you a i can't show you a dot on the map where we successfully established a population uh Mm -hmm. off of those you know there there are no wild pheasants there are no wild chucker in tennessee uh and you know really quail really comes down to you know as trite and as overused as it is uh, it's a classic case of, you know, if you build it, they will come. Yeah. Uh, if you've and got good cover and you leave it uh, through the nesting season and let it stand as far into fall and winter as you can, and if you've got to do some management on it, you know, normally I don't try to, you know, f- me personally, when I'm doing management with landowners, I try to do all my burning in February or March just so that cover has to, can stand as long as possible and then i won't set back the whole farm all in one lick i yeah. want to make sure i leave something some refuge for whatever uh was in there to to have a place to go to yeah touch on that real quick the burning mm-hmm. you know it, it's kind of again you got two sides of the coin everybody's solution for everything is either burning or you get the other person that says to never burn i there's a clear time when a burn is necessary, but like you, you came out here again, use my property as an example. I've mm-hmm. had one biologist before come out and he told me, do not burn until you get rid of the fescue. What is your opinion on the burning? Is there a right time or is the right time always the right time to burn? So a burn is a tool in my habitat management, uh, tool chest, no different than a planter or the disc or herbicide or just nothing time is a tool just as well yeah Uh, and you know i I want to be intentional about it and i want to be using the right tools so you know in your example out here we could burn this field indefinitely and we will not burn fescue out of this field right uh grasses love to be burned uh we won't burn broom sedge out of this field it loves to be burned uh, you know, we have to use, if there's a specific, uh, plant we want out of the field, uh, then we, uh, we have to use a chemical. A lot of times we're going to be using herbicide applications and some people can be nervous about that. Yeah. Uh, and I get that, but the reality of it is we're, we're trying to manage 
by and large, highly altered systems. You know, this this particular property, I would imagine there's has had unknown gallons of 2,4-D sprayed on it over the decades to try to kill anything broadleaf out of the fields. Yeah. Uh, but the reality of it is uh, there's still broadleaf plants out there, and there's yeah. still work to be done. Uh, and so, I mean, that that's really – you know, I talk to anybody, you get, you, you get in this dog world and you start talking to everybody and it's amazing how everybody becomes a biologist overnight. As mm-hmm. soon as they buy a dog, then they have a degree in biology, right? Uh, My, mine came with, both of mine came with a degree. <laughs> exactly. So, so, uh, I mean, it, it's one of those, uh, when I'm talking to tailgate biology with buddies or whatever and i'll i start laying out my plan like you know i'm this big big time biologist and i know everything their, their solution to everything is burn it burn it burn it and i'm like well you know the actual biologist over here told me that if i burn it the fescue is actually going to get worse and and so it, it's I, I don't know it, it's it's like how do we know as i mean is really the only way to properly know just experience and talk to your local biologist so well, first off, your fescue can't get much worse. <laughs> but, you know, I'll, I'll say this. Uh, a lot of what I base my management decisions on and my recommendations on, some of it is experimental. So, you know, a lot of it is, you know, what does the literature say? What does the research say? But a, a big portion of it and probably the biggest advantage that working with a resource professional brings you is I'm learning from the screw ups of landowners in 22 other in 21 other counties. Yeah. So I can figure out, you know, not just what does the research say, but what did that, how did that work out for them? You're seeing actual results, actual results from, and I've got, you know, landowner contacts all over the place, uh, that I can bounce ideas off of people that have tried stuff, uh, you know, my recommendation is if you've if you've got an idea and you've got science to back it up, if it seems logical, if it seems reasonable, take a half acre or a tenth acre and try it and see what happens. Yeah. Uh, some you know, even if you kill everything there and you might have killed some good stuff, something else is going to grow back. Yeah. You know, it's 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 not permanent. Uh, try it, see what happens. You might be surprised. You're going to learn something from it. Yeah. And you're going to learn something that you can, uh, you know, you can share with other people that are trying to do the same thing that you're trying to do. And so briefly explain, you know, you just talked about burning, you know, a lot of people, they may not jump into it because they don't want the maintenance on a yearly basis of dealing with this stuff. You know, Mm -hmm. they don't want to go plant. They don't want to go plow every single year. So briefly explain the, the, the difference between, you know, managing for natives and managing for for your annual, you know, maybe your grain crops and everything that we were talking about earlier, because it's it's kind of it seems like if you if you go at this the right way with the right intentions and goals, you can kind of set it up however you want with with the level of maintenance that works for you. So you know, with with getting to a, a native plant community, a lot of times we're kind of front loaded on what we're trying to get done because we're we're trying to get stuff sprayed. We might be having to uh, mow the field to get it at the right stage to get good herbicide uptake, uh, but generally after we get our 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 killing done, then we're maybe two to three years of looking at it mm-hmm. and maybe some spot treatments 
but not doing a whole lot of, you know, intensive agriculture otherwise for a couple of years until that thing kind of gets established. And then we're coming back around again and uh, getting ready to do a, some activity to set back that succession to to let that regrow from a uh, from basically bare dirt again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, with you know, as compared to an annual planting, you know, kind of the the poster child for uh, for quail, especially, is grain sorghum. You know, the, some of the varieties that get uh, waist high. You know, it it provides some food resource, but at the same time, uh, you have an annual expense both in your time because you're, you know if you're doing if you're doing no till, you're going to have a spraying pass and you're going to have a planting pass. But that comes with generally you're going to need a little bit bigger tractor to be able to pull the planter, uh, and if you're buying the planter, that's going to be a, a major expense. Yeah, uh, and you're going to have uh, annual fertilizer. You're going to have an annual fertilizer bill, uh, and grain sorghum is great until Johnson grass grows grows in it because they're both in the same genus. So you have no option to kill Johnson grass out of your grain sorghum. You're just going to, you're just going to deal with it or you're going to have to swap up crops and plant something else there for a while. Yeah. Uh, And Johnson grass can be a bit of a a bear to get rid of. So uh, just, uh, you know, that that's one of the, the challenges with trying to manage for a monoculture is nature doesn't like monocultures. Yeah. And uh, neither do those species of wildlife we're managing mm-hmm. for. Uh, so either we've got to manage a bunch of different little different patches uh, to provide a little bit of grain sorghum over here and maybe some brood cover over there. And we're kind of back to that scenario that we talked about earlier that isn't really ideal. Uh, or we can uh, instead try to focus on our, our native habitat management with an interspersion of all these different cover types. And I've got no, you know, I don't have a problem at all with doing food plots and, you know, they're, yeah. they're, 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 a, they're a part of it. Uh, but, uh, they're not all of it by yeah. a long shot. That makes sense. So, all right, let's talk briefly on, on some of the state programs that, that, that you interact with, because, you know, we just covered a lot of ground and, you know, it, it's one of those, I've had two visits by a biologist, my head's spinning to where it's just like, all right, I understand this to where I can do it on an annual food plot basis. I can go at it from the native species over here, but also I need to keep it also manageable training grounds, but also want hunting grounds. So it's like, how do I as a landowner or, you know, I, I don't know, there's a lot of chapters out there with training grounds, you know, how does somebody go about finding the information and the resources on how to properly manage it? with their goals in mind, but also their expenses in mind as well. So the, the first thing I would suggest is reaching out to a resource professional and, uh, you're kind of building your team to help you. So there's, uh, depending on what state you're in, that might be a, a, a biologist with a state wildlife agency that might be quail forever, pheasants forever. Uh, that could be the state forestry agency. Uh, the Natural Resources Conservation Service is also another good resource. They're part of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. They have uh, dependent. Some states have more biologists than others, but we have biologists here in Tennessee that, uh, with them, that also help landowners do uh, do projects. Uh, 
And, and you know, kind of the first, the place to start is that te- what we call technical assistance, mm-hmm. uh, meeting on the farm with a professional, and that kind of sets the sets the tone, sets the plan for going forward. And you know, once you've got that plan and you've got an idea of what you want to get done, let's say in the next two years, then we can start looking at some of the financial assistance programs. So here in Tennessee, we have a little bit of state money. Uh, it's a pretty small pot, and it's limited to, I believe, $2,500 per project. But we basically use that as kickstart money to get somebody started, like if they come in and they're, wanting to, they're ready to start, but we just uh, got past one of the federal program uh, application cutoffs mm-hmm. uh, just to kind of we don't want somebody that's hot to trot and ready to go to have to sit up to have to sit out and wait for that to come back around if that's if that financial situation is a hindrance now uh, here in Tennessee uh, we have and and really these three programs are nationwide they're part of the the farm bill uh, which is this humongous bit of legislation that gets passed every few years yeah uh, I think it's generally four to five years that it lasts. Uh, but the Conservation Stewardship Program, the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, and the Conservation Reserve Program, uh, of those three, the C- CRP is probably the one that people are most, most familiar, familiar with, with, at least in this circle. But the reality of it is CRP is only eligible on crop ground or ground that's been re- recently cropped. Yeah. Uh, the other two programs, though, we can do habitat improvements with those other two programs on any ground. It doesn't have to have a history of being in crop. It can be hayfield. It can be pasture that's being retired. It doesn't even have to be retired. We can work with uh, to make habitat within the, the structure of, of the grazing system. Uh, we can do habitat improvement in the forest with these programs. So there's, they're really flexible and there's a lot of opportunities out there. And those, those three are federal programs. That's not even Tennessee. Specific those are, programs. those are federal programs. That's part, part of the farm bill. Uh, and generally, uh, by, by rule, at least the equip program, uh, 10% of all the funds that are spent in equip are supposed to be going towards, uh, wildlife habitat projects. So that's, a pretty significant portion. Now, as a biologist, I would love to see that number a whole lot higher. Oh yeah. Uh, but you know, we're dealing with conservation that is voluntary and on private lands. So that's where the folks that are listening to this podcast come in, they get in contact with us. So we've got more places to do more work and, uh, get more habitat on the ground. And that's what I was about to ask you. I mean, it's just like, again, going back to the start of this you know how how many grounds would you say in the short time that you've been in the dog world that you've gone out to training grounds that you go out there and you're like this resembles nothing like hunting habitat so something that would actually produce good breedable uh brooding cover and those three qualities that you talked about at the start how often do you see that to where it's like if you would just manage that a little bit better for the wildlife but also training ground it would go a long way in in helping out the entire wildlife system you know i don't know that i've seen i don't know that i've seen one yet that i would say now that is some good cover that i would expect to find wild birds in uh generally Mm -hmm. speaking there might be some in the field next to it that we're not training on 
but the places that I've been to, it, it just generally speaking, and, and like you said, a lot of it is we want to see our dogs. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, me working with a, fl- you know, the flushing dog, I can go either way. Oh, you're uh, about to get in the flushing versus pointing. Uh, no, not too deep. I, I don't want to get you know. I don't want to get you to have to too much you, hate mail. You brought the setter today. You didn't even bring the boykin. So, <laughs> but uh, you know, with, with the with the flushing dog, it's probably not as important because you know, with him, all I need to be able to know is about how far out he is. Yeah. So I can kind of whistle him in or whistle him to the left or the right. Now he is a Boykin, so he's solid brown. <laughs> so basically the way I judge that, if I'm in good cover, is I just look to see where the weeds are moving. <laughs> yeah. I just yeah. I look for the 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 bushes shaking and, and listen for the stuff cracking and I, I have a general idea of about yeah. where he is. Yeah. Uh and that works good enough for a flushing dog. Yeah. Well now but on the pointing dog side of things, I mean would you say in your experience, obviously putting habitat on the ground, but you, now you're training a pointing dog. You're, you're, you're seeing what the, the dog trainers say that they really like to see and what they need to see in the ground. But would you say as a biologist that it is possible to have good quality hunting cover and brooding cover while having decent training grounds as well? It can in the be. same field. What what I would lean towards is, and this is maybe my bias, is I, you know, in the perfect world, I'd love a scenario where we don't, where we don't need to buy birds. Yeah, that would be that that'd be the perfect world mm-hmm. where we could, where we had enough bird contacts. Yep. In season or during training season, that we weren't having to do to, pen raise. That Absolutely. we weren't having to having to do pen raise. I don't know that we're going to get there in my lifetime, but I'd sure love to see it. Yeah. Uh, that would be, uh, you know, that would take a wholesale change on the way we manage land. Uh, yeah. But. Uh, All right. So last question. Besides doing away with the brush hog, mm-hmm. you can change one thing. Just do away with one thing that the average landowner does or grows or whatever practices. What What are you getting rid of? If you could just wave a magic wand and say this is this doesn't exist besides your brush hog comment. <laughs> and that, that that one right there would go a whole that that one would go a long way. Right. The 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 bush hog and the rec- recreational mowing, as we like to call it. Uh, well, what about an invasive species? Just one that you hate. That uh, you see it and you're you like, know, it gives you nightmares at night. Fescue is <laughs> everywhere, but that that would probably be probably number one would be fescue. fescue. Because it, it's everywhere and it's kind of it, it fundamentally changed the way a lot of people grazed and managed livestock when it came over. Okay. Uh, you know, historically on the Cumberland Plateau, we had, you know, we had bison, we had elk, we had uh prairie grouse up there. Yeah. Uh but the way that grazing was managed is pe- people just basically free grazed on the Cumberland Plateau through the summer. Because uh, there weren't any cool season grasses, and then they would have haystock piled off the side of, off in the valley in the wintertime, and they would uh as they left the grazing, they just pitch a match over their shoulder as they left and just let it burn till it burned yeah and uh now the Cumberland Plateau is one of the most heavily forested areas in the state yeah uh because and that was no small part of it is the 
you know, that, that style of grazing went away, but a big part of the reason it went away is because, uh, well, if we had fence laws that came in, but also, uh, also we had a fescue that changed. Just changed the landscape. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Well, that's why I enjoyed the the walk out here and I'm, I'm looking forward to learning more about obviously my property, but just managing other properties. And then, like I said, you know, we all, if you don't own property, you have training grounds and maybe that owner wants to do better, wants to learn more. And it's like, all right, well maybe, maybe it's something that the listeners and as a community, we come together and we start figuring out, okay, how do we do both? Cause like you said, I would love to live in a world to where we don't have to use pen raised birds. I don't ever see it getting there, but you know, it would be nice, but oh, it'd be great. It, it'd, it'd be, be great. But you know, wild birds is where it's at. That's, that's my, that's what I'm after, and that's my goal. And it's one of those like I haven't even been running my dogs out in the fields because the quail have been whistling. And like you said earlier, it's it's nesting season. So yeah. um, I don't know. It's just it's just interesting to to see where we go from here. And uh, you know, I'm just gonna learn and and try and get the best of both worlds out here. I guess we'll you know we'll see what it ends up being and if it's even possible. <laughs> well, and you know, this isn't just a quail thing or a Tennessee thing. You know, we've. We have converted, you know, over 90% of our grasslands, our native grasslands, to something else besides a native grassland. Yeah. And, you know, we're seeing it with our quail. We're seeing it with a lot of native insects. You know, monarch butterfly has yep. been petitioned for listing on the Endangered Species Act uh, mm-hmm. because it's in such a steep decline. And uh, it's all, you know, the biggest part of it is the way we manage what we've got left. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, the monarch butterfly, that's a perfect example. Go plant some milkweed. You Just don't put- have to plant milkweed. <laughs> it's a, it's a very common if you'll if just when you're riding around the next little bit, just look for it in the hay fields. Yeah. But, you know, it's kind of the same thing that happens with quail. Mhm. We we either point we're going to spray it out or we're going to you know, cut it with the hay. Yeah. So, you know, that that's the the larval food source for the monarch butterfly. Yeah. So they lay eggs, you know, kind of like what happens with quail. The quail the quail build a nest in a hay field, it all gets chopped off. Yeah. Butterfly comes in there, lays eggs on that milkweed that's been allowed to grow, you know, three feet tall. And uh then the hay mower comes in and lops it off. So yep. whatever whatever was, you know, from an insect value was in that field and you know, it's not just monarchs and, and you know, from a from as a biologist, the reason I care about bugs is because bugs are baby bird food. Yep. Uh, the invertebrates in those fields that are you know much more diverse and much more abundant in a diverse field versus a a monoculture of fescue, whether it's being hayed or whether it's being uh, left to stand. There's just a whole lot more life and a whole lot more diversity in a diverse plant community Um, yeah now well you just took something i was about to say just you know keep your milkweed up and go plant that but you're right you know you it it goes right back to your saying keep the brush hog in the in the barn don't don't go cutting park that rascal all right well is there anything else that you would put out there that uh you want to touch on before we let you go i think we've kind of covered a lot of ground and and related it back to dogs as much as we could yeah well you gotta you gotta chase a rabbit every now and then. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, biggest thing is you know people that are involved with the land are people that manage the land, and just 
it, it's encouraging to me as a biologist to see some of this renewed renewed interest in in birds and in bird dogs because if people don't care about birds and then there's no reason that as a state employee that I should be spending a whole lot of time on that either. Uh, yeah. So, you know, as somebody that is personally invested in it, it's good for me to see that there's other people that are personally invested in it because when we can work together, you know, we can change landscapes and we can change uh, policy to, to make things happen to benefit these species that, that we enjoy pursuing. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you coming out, and uh, we'll, we're going to circle back. We're going to see what we, you know, what lipstick we can slap on this pig out here, and, and see what it results here in a few years. But uh, appreciate you coming on and sharing it. And uh, you know, guys, just because we're in Tennessee, like Michael was saying, every state kind of has their different programs, but you have the federal programs too. So get in contact with your agencies and kind of see what you can make happen out there at uh, on your property or your training grounds or. Or, heck, go volunteer and try and help them do it on some public grounds if your state allows it. So, all right, well, we'll check back next week. Thank you for listening to GDIY. If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a moment to rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us and our partners on Facebook and Instagram under Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to contribute even more to the future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash gundog it yourself. Thanks again and happy hunting. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again in a year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.